This is Future Terms from Teach First, a half-termly panel event looking at the biggest issues facing schools in disadvantaged areas. Don't forget to subscribe to listen back to each event. But for now, enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone, my name is Laura Siscioski, I'm the Head of Programmes, Diversity and Inclusion at Teach First Um, and I just wanted to let you all know that this panel is being recorded so that we can share it with future audiences. Um, There will be an opportunity for you to ask questions, you have the Q&A function within the Zoom or you can join us on Twitter using the hashtag Future Terms panel. So please do that. Um, I must stress, though, that we may not be able to get through all the questions. So um, we'll, we'll do our best uh, with as many as we can. So I'm just going to talk for a little bit just to set the context of while we're here. And then I will be handing over and introducing each of our panellists today. Um, I'm really excited to be uh, to be having this session. Um, I think it's a really important topic. And as a white woman who has worked in diversity and inclusion for over 15 years, I recognise the importance of working on anti-racism and the, the importance that we are all actively anti-racist uh, is a responsibility for all of us. And it's something that we all need to be doing. I also think um, it'd be really useful for me to just set a bit of a context of why we're here today. So if we remember the fact that we have um, 95% of young black people in the UK have heard or witnessed racist language in school, um, and if we also take into account that black Caribbean children are three and a half times more likely to be excluded from school than all other children, and that's at primary, secondary and SEN level, um, then we see that there really is a different difference of experience due to colour of skin. Um, and if we also remember that one in four children at English schools are from an ethnic minority background or a black or Asian background, whereas when it comes to heads, 93% of those are white British. So that all sets the scene of why we're here today and why we're talking about this topic. We also saw in our Missing Pages campaign and what it highlighted was that we need to ensure the voices from black, Asian and ethnic minority people are heard and valued. And we need to reinforce that all pupils are valued no matter what background they come from. Um, So we want to use this event to have an open discussion about this topic, about racial equality and what it it actually means to be anti-racist at school and what, what does that approach look like. Um, And we're really, really pleased to have a fantastic panel of speakers with us today um, who can really start these conversations and we can all learn from each other. So I'm going to go ahead and start introducing and I'd ask each panellist to to give us a brief discussion of why why this topic is so important to them. Um, So if I could start with Rosemary Campbell-Stevens, who is an MBE and is an educational leadership consultant author, activist and motivational speaker. So over to you, Rosemary. Thank you very much. Thank you, Laura. And um, it's a pleasure to be here. And I'm really hoping that the link will continue to hold from Jamaica. Um, The the MBE was for services to education, for 35 years service to education in the UK. And so um, I'm glad still to be part of that conversation. And for me, the importance around um, why we need to be looking at anti-racism as a key function within our schools. 
speaks to the data that you started with, Laura, and the fact that irrespective of whether our schools are anti-racist or not, um, the students that attend our schools live in a systemically racist system. So any school that's serious about educating um, young people needs to take into account that the, the average black boy in London, a 14-year-old, can step outside of a tube station in London in his school uniform on his way to school and be picked up by artificial intelligence, AI cameras, that misidentify him as somebody um, that is wanted by the police. And within 15 minutes, he can be surrounded by four unarmed, but also um, cops who will take him down a little side street, question him, fingerprint him, and he can be on a police database within 15 minutes before he arrives at your anti-racist school. So for me, that's why we need the urgency. That's why we need to be unambivalent about what we're doing. It's not about us condemning schools. The kind of people who are on this call are the kind of people who are going to be running anti-racist schools. So it's about us saying that's why it's important, because you connect with the reality of the students and the communities that you serve. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was really, really useful. Um, Desmond, I will come to you next. So Desmond Dehan is with us. He's CEO at Odyssey Trust for Education, and I'd really like to hear your viewpoint. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Um, and in the interest of full disclosure, I'll, I'll state the obvious that I'm a white middle-aged male uh, having a uh, take part in a webinar about anti-racist schools. But it is very much that perspective that I'm, I'm bringing to this. Uh, and I think the fact that Rosemary highlighted the 93% white British head teachers is, is one of the very issues that needs to be addressed in terms of education. Um, I'm also going to acknowledge, I think, the fact that we're, we're talking about anti-racist schools and not non-racist schools. And I think that acknowledgement in the first place it, it is fundamentally important but it's not universal uh, in the education system. And there are many school leaders who, who don't subscribe to the idea of anti-racist school yet. And that's the challenge for us all. What it means for me in particular is it's acknowledging the racism and bias that currently exists, uh, both within the wider institutions in society and therefore schools, which are part of the, that society that also uh, exist in, with a, a racist framework, whether it be uh, conscious or, un or unconscious. And I'd like to just pick up the, the elements that have been important to me and my work. So the first one being education, um, which seems obvious, but this is looking at what we actually teach in schools and how we teach that. Within that is the, uh, the idea of decolonizing the curriculum or certainly providing a much wider context within the curriculums that we teach, and how we make those decisions and choices and historically how we made those decisions in the past. Um, about our behaviours and practice. So what actually happens in schools and the practice that takes place in, in the corridors and in the classrooms and elsewhere. And my particular focus there would be around uniform policy uh, and in that hair discrimination. Uh, the experience of our students and our staff, the lived experience, um, the, the drip drip effect of microaggressions that students bring to schools. And I think uh, Rosemary gave a brilliant example there of the, the, the student leaving the, the tube station um, and the unconscious bias that they, they experience. And that includes our, our staff as well. And finally, then 
the idea of inclusion and that we've, we're moving away from here from equalities to equality, diversity and inclusion. And that means having an inclusive workforce uh, as one of the very important steps in, in creating anti-racist schools uh, and why it has been so difficult up to now to have achieved that. Uh, and whatever progress we make otherwise, unless we have more diverse workforces that represent our school communities, we're only going to make limited progress within that. And, and they're my core areas of concern. Um, and I think what I would underline as a final point on that is this is a, a listening activity rather than a talking activity that actually as school leaders, we have to still be listening uh, both to our students and our communities and to those people who are in a much better position to advise us than, than perhaps we're able to do ourselves. Uh, and hence webinars like this are a, a vital opportunity for, to learn as well. So thank you. Thank you very much. That was, that was brilliant. Thank you. Okay, Penny. Uh, Penny Raybiger is a co-founder and trustee of the BayMed Network. And I'd like to come to you next, if you could again share your views on this on this topic. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, I'm coming to this work as a white woman in the anti-racism and education space and um, with a strong belief that, uh, you know, together we're stronger and we need to take part in dismantling this. So on the one hand, at the BayMed Network, we saw a huge surge of interest in tackling racism from schools, um, obviously following the murder of George Floyd last year. And there was this outpouring of emotion from mainly white school and system leaders, statements of intent and even some strategic thinking happening. But alongside this, um, there's this gradual clawing back of the agenda by the establishment. So we've seen, you know, um, the MP for Women and Equalities came Badenoch, essentially outlawing teachers from engaging in concepts like whiteness, white supremacy or critical race theory and so on. And um, echoes of this moral panic has crept into the guidance for sex and relationships education early in the academic year. And then the recent Sewell report has declared that structural racism is a thing of the past and life is good for people of colour in this country and that we need to focus on individuals and their families rather than systems and to find reasons why some ethnic and racial groups perhaps don't succeed in our education system as well as they could. So I think since we set up the BayMed network and through my involvement in the Anti-Racist Schools Award programme run by Leeds Beckett University, I can see that the first hurdle for us all is racial literacy. And I think that's where I, I'm coming at this from as well. So in coaching school leaders on their journey towards becoming an anti-racist organisation, I think I've seen there's an initial work piece of work to do on kind of understanding the basics for all of us um, because this is the society in which we operate and so as white people we haven't had to think about this much and I think it takes really takes time to see how our racism and our bias runs like lettering through a stick of rock in our curriculum in our behavior management in the way that we hire and develop staff our governance the school environment everything um, and so where I'm coming from is, is um, sort of supporting schools to understand um, what that means and educating myself as well to really see beyond. Um, I think for a lot of schools, racism is, is 
uh, anti-racism is is in logging racist incidents and I think there's a lot of work to do around um, understanding not only what a racist incident looks like but what the packaging is that we're all existing in. Um, and I'd say once we're truly able to see that in our schools, perhaps those racist incidents that we record will rise because we'll be able to see more clearly through this a more sophisticated lens around who holds the power, how they came to hold it. And I think that's essential for us all. Whiteness, after all, is it's a system. It's not a school. It's not a skin colour. And we are all upholding whiteness until we learn how to dismantle it. Um, so I think, yeah, if we can understand that, we can disrupt it and that will benefit all of us. Thank you very much. That's a great summary as well. Thank you. OK, and uh, last but no means least is Marcus Shepherd, who is principal of the Wells Academy. Marcus, really love to hear your, your views on this topic as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think for me, you know, being a... Um, being a mixed race principal, I'm mixed race. I'm, I'm, my dad's black African, my mum's white. I was brought up by my mum, so I've brought up in a very white community. So I have a very different perspective and different upbringing in terms of my race. I think the first thing I would say is understanding that race is a personal experience. There was lots of things that people share that are similarities, but actually making sure that we don't see it as a, as a homogenous experience based on um, you know where, where geographically you may be, your, your culture may be. Um, being a, being a mixed race principal is quite interesting because there are very few non-white principals. And actually what that means, and it's not a kind of, I feel it's been directed against me, but there is, I feel a lot of pressure, pressure to succeed because actually there are so few that, you know, if if you don't succeed, that's a significant proportion of, of the community that aren't succeeding. Um, but also another pressure of, you know, you are the person that should be driving that diversity. You, it should be you, you know, you, you are invested in this and therefore you should be driving it. And one of the things I'm trying to say is it shouldn't be about you know, the colour of your skin about driving it. It should be about, you know, it's the right thing to do. And that's why I think it's fantastic that, you know, we've got a, 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 a mix of panellists and we've got two white panellists because this isn't a thing that we as non-white people need to drive. It's what we all need to drive it's, um, to, to move it forward. Um, and, and, and some of that pressure means that people um, put a lot of um, expectation on what you do and waiting on what you do. I think for me, it's also about understanding and our young people understanding that, um, you know, I'm a principal, so in terms of a school, that's the highest level of kind of authority or status or whatever you want to call it. But actually, when I step out into the, the real world, I, I have a very different experience. I have very different experiences. You know, the amount of times I've been ignored in certain shops, I won't name any, uh, but certain shops where I'm buying certain items that might be high value items. And then when they find out who you are or what your job, sorry, what your job role is. And they ask, you know, if you're looking for credit, your salary, all of a sudden you're, you're greeted by the manager and you're, and you're taken somewhere else. And actually, you know, that's a real experience. It makes me realise that as much as it's important to empower our young people to be successful, there is always something. You know, we've got to also change that, that those issues that they will continue to face. Um, I think what, one of the big things for me about engaging with kind of anti-racism is people not seeing it as a negative thing. And I think Desmond hit a really good point there about being non-racist to being anti-racist. And I think actually um, there is a discourse and I think social media has created this where everything becomes binary. So actually when you say, right, you need to be anti-racist, by definition, people feel that, well, you're calling me racist then by saying I'm not already anti-racist. To me, it's about we're on a journey and, I, and, and I, I'm known for saying things that may be a bit controversial, but I don't think really the issue 
is with young people. I think young people are growing up in a world where very quickly they are they are accepting as lots of things. They're, the world is different to when I was a kid 16, 17 years ago and to when my mum was a kid and when my grandma was a, a child. But I think there is an issue, uh, you know, above young people where people aren't comfortable having that discussion. They aren't comfortable having that debate because there's two things really. One is they don't have the experience and the best thing we can do, I think Desmond talks about it again, is listen. Is listen to people and not just you know I listen as well. I am I have experience of being mixed race in a white working class town. I don't have experience of being uh, of what my African half brother does. I don't have experience what some of my um, Southeast Asian friends um, experience. So that's the first thing is just listening. And secondly, stop this kind of rhetoric that we have to have binary opinions or homogenous opinions. I am sure that me um, and all the panelists will disagree on things. Me being non-white doesn't determine what my um, thought process is, what my views are. And I think it's really important that part of this work is about removing this um, binary argument. You're either, you're either, you're either an anti-racist or you're a racist. Opening that dialogue, listening to each other and having sensible and grown conversations. And if I'm honest, I think young people actually are, are better at having that. Um, sometimes than, than, than the professionals because we haven't got the space to do that. So that's me. I could go on forever, but I'm going to pause because I know we're, we're, we're sticking the time. So. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think we could all talk about this topic for a long time, but we'll do, do our best in the time that we have. Thank you, everyone. Um, I also wanted to mention something I didn't mention earlier, which is just a note on, on language and terminology because it's so important. When we're talking about Black people, I think it's good that we use the term black people when we're talking about research or findings that relate to Asian people. I think it's important that we use Asian people to talk about that and talk about the differences between groups. Um, but also we may be quoting and talking about research that does use the BAME, Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic uh, acronym as well. And I know that Rosemary is probably going to touch on this later, but we can also use the term global majority um, as well. So th there is there is a, a key point. We recognise that these aren't ideal um, and, and we'll, we'll be using different terminology for that reason. So I think while questions are still coming in, so just a reminder that you can use the Q&A function on the Zoom. And you can also use Twitter using the hashtag future terms panel to submit your questions. I'm just going to kick off with um, with a with a question for the panel. Um, I'd really love to hear about what examples have you seen work well in schools that are trying to build an anti-racist culture? What sort of things have you seen work really well? Um, Rosemary, if I could come to you first. Yeah, ab absolutely. Well, um, you know, one of the things that I have seen as a characteristic of schools that um, work well in terms of being intentional about their anti-racism is that they are very, they're unambivalent about the fact that they work within a systemically racist system. That, that isn't up for debate. It isn't uh, whether you agree with this or not. The evidence is overwhelmingly there that the system is um, racist. And, and so if that's, a, if that's a starting point, um, then it cuts out a lot of time in terms of us debating whether there's racism or not. But what it actually does do is enable schools to look at the systems that they will have inherited, whether it be through assessment, whether it be through behavior policies, 
whether it be through government policies around um, uh, interventions such as prevent. Um, you know, it's it, it's 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 enabling schools to look at the extent to which racism is embedded already within their systems before we even begin to look at individuals' bias, unconscious bias, or um, individuals' positions. And so schools that are in that place where they understand that they're having to navigate their way through and dismantle, as Desmond and Penny quite rightly say, but en route to dismantling, um, lessening the worst excesses of that system is, um, is good enough. It's certainly something that, that um, I, as a, a head teacher, was very, very clear about. Um, you know, my own personal position as a, as a Pan-Africanist and as, a, a, as an African woman is that really, I wanna just bond down Babylon. But it didn't happen in the 35 years that I, I was there. So I really had to be quite systematic and quite strategic and clear that if I can lessen the worst excesses of a systemically racist system, um, and by focusing on that which is going to have the greatest effect for the, for the largest number of students, then I'm good. So that would look uh, that would enable me to look at setting. It would definitely enable me to look at um, my recruitment policies and who I, who I was recruiting to work in the schools. It would enable me to strengthen the work around parental engagement. Um, it would enable me to really put some proper structuring around um, enabling student voice within that school. Because as, as Marcus quite rightly pointed out, the students are a couple of steps ahead of us on this. And it's actually about creating a space where they make a difference. But if, there, if, there's, a, if there's one thing that I think um, these schools do well, Laura, um, it's actually looking at, and, and this speaks to my terminology now in terms of global majority. If you actually want to shift the dial in terms of the conversation on race, then you need to understand that the people that you are talking about, part of the racialism is to minoritize them. That's part of how racial, racialization works, that you minoritize them. And so that's why I speak about global majority, because the children of Black, Asian, and other global majority cultures that may be statistically minorities in your school are actually part of a global majority. And so if we look at that, then anti-racism becomes a core component of our school because it's the process by which we not only recognize that these children are the majority, but we recognize that all of the students in our schools are citizens of the globe. And if we operate our school in terms of that kind of um, viewpoint and that kind of lens, then anti-racism becomes a default position. Thank you. That's a really, really good point. Well made. Thank you. That's really interesting. Desmond, if I could come to you next. So what, what examples have you seen work well in schools? 
Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think picking up on one of those, the points that Rosemary made around student voice uh, and that Mark's made as well, what I've seen being most effective is is when you stop coming out with statements and and putting strategies in place without first listening to the students and knowing the community that you're serving and their experiences. Um, And I personally have made those mistakes in the past myself of of running along with something without actually stopping and listening to the students themselves. And I've learned valuable lessons from that. So understanding the kind of experiences they have um, and the the cultural background and what they're bringing to to the school uh, before you determine um, your your strategies or your policies. I think there's a a significant change that's needed within schools. in that respect, in changing what student voice actually means. Uh, student voice has frequently been a representative group uh, around sometimes not terribly significant areas within the school. And I think probably moving more to a, a sense of student democracy rather than student voice. Uh, if we want a better curriculum, for instance, and I think there's some, been some great moves within uh, changing the curriculum, but, but not sufficient, then that should be maybe co-created curriculum with students rather than uh, a decision that's, that's simply held within the potentially white majority school leadership. I think that acknowledgement where I've seen that, that uh, school leaders acknowledge that they are part of an institutionally racist organisations or, or society, uh, and therefore they have had some, some subtle, perhaps not, not so subtle benefits from that, that they have to acknowledge first, whether you call that white privilege or, or otherwise, um, and that they're starting from that point of view that therefore they have to be better informed before making any further decisions because every decision they're going to make is going to be influenced by that um, racist training, upbringing, et cetera, induction. Um, so acknowledging it and recognising it. I think that, that's a, a, a key part. I would say the other things I've, I've found personally that we found really useful was tackling something that was very overt um, and had largely been ignored, and that was hair discrimination uh, so in one of the schools, which has um, thinking about minorities and majorities, this in, in one of our schools, the majority, there's a third of the students are black African uh, girls school, third of the students are black African girls school, uh, third are Asian, um, Indian and, and other Asian, and a third are white British. So to have a hair policy, which effectively discriminated girls of black African, African origin because of their hair, was a both a very visible uh, and very telling um, aspect of how the school tackled racism. So sometimes it's the, it's the very obvious and very clear, but sometimes that one that remains hidden. Uh, and what, by tackling it, one of the things that became really clear was why did we need to have particular hair rules in the first place at all? What purpose were they serving? And how many values were behind those decisions about what was neat and tidy and acceptable hair? Um, so sometimes the way into this is, is not through the obvious, is not through anti-racist education or training of staff, all of which are important. It can be something which is fundamentally important to the students themselves, hence coming back to that idea of listening to the students. They won't know uh, whether you've done intensive inset days and training with your staff, but they will know when they're stopped in the morning uh, because their hair is too big or in the way or is not considered an acceptable colour. That affects them immediately. So if you start from students' experiences first and work from there, I think sometimes that's far more effective and and you make the right decision, even though they all may be well-intentioned. 
I do feel, though, that with the staff training, there's a significant hurdle for schools to, to undergo because uh, with, I don't think we're unusual in the fact that actually we've still got a way to go to get a representative staff body that represents the students that they teach. Uh, and as a result, the, the unconscious bias that they bring to that, that role can be both individually can feel very threatening for a member of staff to, to acknowledge that, am I racist, am I anti-racist, et cetera, and, and going through that conversation and, and seeing that. Um, but it also means there are a number of those microaggressions and small behaviours which are the drip-drip effect of those students, again, that, that may not have been noticed. And I think that comes back to a point that was made earlier about recording racist incidents. Um, I think our, our discovery is that a majority of racist incidents are, are never recorded and never reported. Uh, because of that acceptance that nothing's going to happen about it and therefore I don't record this. It's only those ones that are witnessed and acknowledged by somebody that get recorded. Um, and so it's the, the, the that are hidden, the smaller behaviours that sometimes are the, are the bigger issue. And I think where schools have tackled those, um, it's been a lot more uh, effective. Um, and I would actually, there's, a, there's a, a phrase I really like, which, which is about there's no situation so bad that you cannot make it worse. Uh, I think when dealing with a racist incident or uh, a protest from students, I think the capacity of some school leaders to go from a bad situation to an increasingly worse situation by not stopping, pausing and listening uh, is fundamental in, in the approach of schools. And stopping schools being seen as authority areas where it, it's the authority rule, particularly when that authority itself can be flawed because of racism without the institutional or individual within that. Um, acknowledging that fact that you've got to have a different relationship with your school community if this is going to be effective. It, it can't be a done unto. It's got, it's got to be a done with. Um, and I think those, those, those have been probably the most effective ones in my view. Thank you very much. That's really interesting. And I think we'll come back to this um logging and reporting of incidents because it's a really key one. Marcus, could I ask you as well, what, what examples have you seen work really well in schools? Yeah, I think um, I think where I've seen it working, and we've got a lot of work to do, and, you know, and that's one of the things I talk about, just because I'm a, a mixed race uh, principal, we're by no means um, where we, we want to be or where we're going on a journey. I think where I've seen the work best is when things aren't bolt-ons. Um, I think too often people and this I think this comes down to the purpose what are you doing this for are you doing it to be to look or to be perceived as being anti-racist or are you doing it to be anti-racist they are two very different things so you know everyone always talks about we do lots of things for black um, history Month. okay what do you do other than that what about people that aren't black what do you understand that you will have um, different ethnicities different cultures so it's about do you the schools that do it the best who genuinely that is their purpose is at the core of what they do um, I think, um, I can't remember who mentioned it, it might be Rosemary talked about um, the biggest things that have the biggest impact and also looking at intersectionality because actually what you find is these policies, these structures that you break down impact everybody positively, not just a small group. And I think sometimes there's a thing of, well, we're doing all this for, we're not, we're doing it for everybody. It's literally, you get a better curriculum, you get better policies, you get better um, strategies. It, it's better for everybody. In terms of, I think less so about the strategy, it's more about the kind of purpose behind what you're doing. It's understanding the structures, understanding 
you know, you talked about there about the hair structure. I've always, every school I've been a principal of, we've never really had a hair policy because, you know, I, I, I bick my hair, I buzz my hair off, so I could never turn around to a student and say, you can't have a zero grade because I have it all the time. Um, and actually what people get really hit up about is, oh, they'll come in with all these different colours. And I think one child's come in with rainbow hair and I said, you know, fine, cool, like, great. Like, it's, it's not a problem. Hair is, for me, is something that, but actually when people double down and say, no, this really isn't, um, this isn't racist. Actually, you're just not opening your ears and you may not perceive it because that's not your experience. And, and the whole point is that you've never had to go through that. When I was at school, my hair was Afro. My hair was curled. I had I had three choices. I, I went bold. Um, I let my hair grow out to an Afro or I had to plait it. And in some schools, two of those things, or actually three of those things wouldn't have been acceptable. So I think it's about listening and understanding that just because you've not experienced it doesn't mean to shut down that conversation. We had a discussion in, 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 a, in a webinar I was involved in where people talked about the schools that do it, do it the best, the schools that are comfortable being uncomfortable with discussion. So getting into uncomfortable discussion. Um, and, and, and you can't be, be, be doing this work if you're not ready to have that. And what that means is a truly safe space, not a place where people can be uh, bigoted, people can be, you know, where people are not fearful of saying something or asking, you know, I really... I'm going to say something and I, and I just need to get reflection, to have discussion, to understand. That's the place that we need to get to. And where schools do that really well is where they create that forum for students, for staff, for, for communities, for parents. And we can have that open discussion. I think as well, and I always talk about where we, so sometimes controversial things, I think also um, the community ourselves. You know, I have a conversation with some, some black students the other day and they were talking about uh, and people have different opinions on this on this webinar it's okay sir for us to say the n-word but other people can't say it and i sat down and said okay can i say it because i'm a, i'm lighter skin than you are it can miss say it because she's lighter skin than me what about miss who's white yeah, actually we had a really good discussion now your views on that i'm not here to say what's right or wrong but what i am here to say is this is what we do in my school and actually um it's really important that we're respectful of everybody um i, I think that's the key thing is understanding you know, not being defensive about things, opening that discussion, being prepared to move. I think um, Desmond made a really good point. In schools, we're very good at, and you know, head teachers are the worst at it. Is this is how we do things at this school? These are our rules. If you don't like it, then you need to go somewhere else. Well, actually, most of it's come from our own internal experience. It's really important to understand that. How does that young person feel? And actually, can we change something to make them feel differently? And we still get what we need and what everyone's going towards. It's just much more inclusive. Um, so, so that's kind of where I stand with it. Thank you. Thank you. That was really good to hear. Um, Penny, just coming to you now, any examples that you've seen work well? Yeah, I mean, everything that everyone says really resonates. I think um, I think schools, what, what's interesting is that schools are often, the adults in schools are often really poor at learning. Um, so they don't want to be in this place of discomfort and to not know things. And so it feels easier to kind of set out a set of rules and then enforce them. So there's, you know, there's a lot of focus on what language we use or whatever. So I think the schools where I've seen it working well are schools that are brave and public about their work, but they're not performative about it. And they're brave and public on about the journey that they're on. Schools that consult with students, their families, that have the courage to consult with past students, teachers, maybe teachers that have left, you know, to really go deep in the work to find out where they're at. Um, and then 
schools to act on that information and give regular strategic updates. So, you know, you said we did, or you said, and we didn't do, and this is because our understanding is X, Y, and Z. So that it's part of a learning journey that it's, we talked about dismantling. I think there's also, you know, kind of unlearning as well. Um, And I think it's also learning to see through the anti-racist lens and then seeing um, opportunities. And there's a really nice uh, example. It's probably quite not very obvious one. It wasn't to me that I came across recently with a a school that I was uh, coaching for the anti-racist program. Um, And they'd seen an opportunity. um, they, They were rebuilding the reception area of their school. And they'd seen an opportunity to ask the whole school community, you know, this is going to be the first place people will come when they enter the school. How can we model our commitment to equity, to inclusion, to, you know, what do we want to um, express here? And it's, it's concrete you know, glass, steel, whatever it is on the face of it, but it isn't, it says so much. And I think that's where schools can go wrong is that it is, we're so used to being about tick boxes and about uh, fulfilling this duty or that duty, but they really took it as a, you know, involving the children, involving their families, um, doing some work around looking at buildings and what they communicate, thinking about power structures. You know, when you come into a reception area of a school and you're faced with a person sitting behind a desk that's here and there's glass, that tells me, you know, you don't come closer than here and it could be a dangerous situation. Um, so, so I thought that was a really nice uh, opportunity to say, you know, how can we use this opportunity to, put on our anti-racist lenses to look at this and to say, what could we do here to make sure that we help people to think, feel and do uh, the way that we think that anti-racism should look when they come in contact with us as a school. Thank you. Thank you. That's a really tangible example. Right. I'm going to move into some, we've got some fantastic questions coming through. So um, one, one very interesting question that's come through is how can we appropriately deal with racist incidents within school to educate the perpetrators on why their actions are problematic? Um, Rosemary, I think I'll come to you. Um, can you give me your... your... Yes, abso- ab- absolutely, Laura. And if I may, I'd, I'd like to conflate that question with an, another one that's come up about um, working in um, all white schools, you know, um, because I think that's important as well. So I'll base my answer on my experience of being a deputy head in a secondary school that was majority white, um, very well-to-do, high middle-class, high-performing school, and my headship, which was in an all-white working class secondary school, where my biggest um, democracy democracy issues was around class. Um, So for me, it's really, really key that the way that we approach um, anything in terms of young people understanding the impact of their behavior is that when it comes to racism, that we don't get scared about that 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 racist that that racist title we're very very clear as leaders and teachers about behaviors that cause harm to other students or or cause harm within the community in terms of 
um, undermining people's positions or, or making people feel fearful or, or whatever. We're very, very clear in our procedures. And so I think what tends to happen sometimes with racist incidents, as, as, as Desmond has said, sometimes they're not even recorded as such, because what we, what we then get down to is um, analyzing what kind of incident it is, as opposed to looking at the impact of the incident and therefore dealing with the impact of the incident. And so in the same way that we would um, talk to students about their behavior for just thumping another child or for, be, for excluding another child, then if a, if a child behaves in a racist way, then we have to have the same conversation. And we can have that conversation actually without even mentioning the word racism to that child and explaining to them why the behavior is unacceptable and why it's damaging. So, you know, as I said, my two examples of leadership have been in white, largely white spaces. And I, I think one of the things that is important around looking at racist incidents is understanding that there's racism and then where we are now in the discussion, there's a kind of white supremacy that we do need to look at because what white supremacy does is to normalize behavior that isn't um, overtly seen or can be easily labeled as racist. Hence, for example, the examples that we've been talking about in terms of uniform or hair. You know, people could argue until the cows come home that my policy, my hair policy isn't racist. Might not be, but it might be white supremacist. It might be. And so that's the kind of level of thing that we need to be doing with the adults in the space to understand that much that has been normalized and is seen to be neutral is actually coming from a white supremacist approach to looking at systems including our education system, and that we shouldn't be fearful because the kids are ready, yeah? We shouldn't be fearful in terms of um, attacking racist incidents and actually being quite ambivalent about the impact that that behavior has had on the other person, and that's why we need to deal with it. But deal with it with, with compassion as well as with, as with um, tough love. Thank you. Thank you for that. Marcus and Desmond, I'd really like your, your views on um, how we can engage our leaders uh, more on this, on this topic. So how can we ensure that they're engaged around anti-racism? So Desmond, if I could come to you first. Yeah, well, I think if we go back to that um, statistic around the, the percentage that are um, white British teachers and school leaders, the first challenge is, is uh, making sure that those leaders acknowledge the fact that they are part of their, in fact, their position is in some way influenced by um, racist institutions. Their potential to have progressed to the stage they are is actually a product of that, whether they were conscious of it or not. Um, engaging them in a conversation. I think the reaction, uh, lots of school leaders are understandably risk averse. Um, you get trained to actually try and avoid risks and you spend a significant amount of your time trying to calculate risks and, and mitigate and, and reduce them. Therefore, it's not the most common thing for, for a head teacher to go and do something which might be potentially risky in terms of the uh, perception of the, the public or, or parents or the, or the school 
or governors. Um, so one of the things is, is actually important in head teachers to, to be less risk averse. Uh, and that means putting some protections and support. And I think some of the best support for head teachers are peer networks, other head teachers and other school leaders who can support and advise uh, and engage with them to give them the confidence to actually do what they think is right, even if everything else is telling them that this is too risky or, or it potentially could go wrong. Things going wrong are part of school leadership, um, as every head teacher learns. But actually, there are some things which are worth doing wrong because of the integrity uh, of attempting it. Uh, so we have to change a little bit around the system. Ideally, this should also come from Department for Education and ministers, etc. actually give that freedom for heads to do that. I noticed in some of the Q&As, there were some questions about that I think sort of linked to that. How can you do this when actually the government says you're not supposed to teach this? Head teachers have an immense amount of power and control uh, and CEOs have an immense power power control and even the limitations which are currently there are, are workable you can work around that if you feel it's important enough to do so um, but there will always be 101 reasons not to do something that's important and only one reason actually to, to do it which is because it's the right thing to do so I think the best way I think is through peer support and one of the reasons I have and we have been so public in, in our stance is to give that sense of confidence to other school leaders. So actually, it's okay. You can do this, and, and it won't be necessarily easy. And we certainly got some flack for it ourselves, both from the students who are trying to support as well as, as those who are against it. But actually, it, you can work through that, and it's the right thing to do in the end. Um, I think it also the other part, because we're not looking at this issue right now alone, we're also looking at this issue five years or ten years from now, because if we're still having this conversation ten years from now, we haven't achieved anything. So it's the next cohort of head teachers that come through. It's the it's the deputies and assistant heads that are coming through. That actually they're the people we really need to be working for if we want substantial and lasting change. Thank you, Marcus. What about you? Yeah, I think um, so. In terms of kind of leadership, I think one of the things is um, Desmond and Penny both kind of started and in, in, in introduced themselves as kind of. Um, I know I'm talking about on a virus panel, but I'm why. And actually, understanding that, and I've had this conversation there with somebody, allyship's really, really important. And understanding what allyship is, which is not taking over the discussion. And again, as principals, we're very good at taking over things. You know, um, give, give it to me, I'll, I'll lead it. Amplifying voices. So I've seen it done really badly where there's not been a, a non-white member of SLT. So they, we bring somebody in who's not white, sit them at the table and say, right, how do we solve diversity? Go And actually... It's a very narrow focus with one person's point of view. Um, it's about engaging in the discussion and amplifying that voice and finding a lever to allow those people to be the architects of that, the community to be architects of that, and they facilitate it rather than leading it. Um, but what we have to understand, and we talked about statistics themselves, you know, 93% um, you know, leaders, the in terms of pipeline, that's not going to significantly change in the next two, five, ten years. So actually... It can't be seen as, um, and we've talked about kind of using the term minority, it can't be seen as a minority issue. It can't be seen as a minority forward. It needs to be seen as a big issue that we all need to tackle and deal with. And actually understanding that it's going to require lots of allyship, but understanding truly what allyship means, which is not taking over the discussion. And, tell, you know, I've had some quite interesting conversations with, with people where I'm being told how I should feel and my experience because they've decided they're now going to take this on as a bit of a crusade and they're telling me how it is. Actually, 
That's not what allyship is. Allyship is about amplifying the voices. It's about giving people the opportunity. It's about finding, you know, the space to do that. And it's also about identifying that, you know, we talk about equality and equity. It, it, there are just obstacles that are in the way of certain people and identifying that. I, I openly now go in, I, I know, so for instance, so two things I'd say in terms of leaders. One is identifying those obstacles. I know there are more challenges for, um, um, you know, non-white teachers. There are also more challenges for for uh, female teachers if they've had a better, you know, people come back from maternity. It's understanding those things as a leader. What are you going to do then to support that? What are you going to do? But it's also, and I think that Desmond talked about this here, it's about calling it out. And it's not about calling it out because it's personal to you. It's about calling it out because it's the right thing to do. I don't call things out because racism because I'm not white. I call it out because I want to look my kids in the eye. I want to look everyone in the eye and say that. Just like when I hear misogyny, and I've heard it, I've heard it, you know, not in the trust at the moment, but I've heard it at senior levels in previous trusts I've worked at. And I have stood there and called it out in an all-male environment because I want to look my wife, my mother, my daughter in the eye and say, this is an issue. It's not your issue, it's our issue. And I think we have to do the same thing with race, where people feel comfortable calling it out, but not controlling the narrative and not leading it. It's a about listening, it's about amplifying, it's about using their their power, their status to spread that message, but always understanding that it's really about listening and about amplifying and pushing up those voices. Thank you, thank you very much. And we saw some thumbs up from uh, from your panel members as well. Um, Penny, if I could come to you, uh, a really interesting question that's come through is, how do we build a culture where teachers and pupils can actively and openly have conversations that are difficult about race and about privilege? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, I, I live with two teenagers and I really agree with the other panel members. You know, young people, they know. And, I, you know, all this obsession with taking away phones from children, I can say that my children have been educated by TikTok and by, you know, online and they educate me. So I think we shouldn't be frightened of it. And I think it, it, it relates back to the, the idea also that we've created a culture in school, in a lot of schools where teachers aren't learners. They're very frightened of not knowing the answers and not being the font of all knowledge. So I think you need to, you need to start with yourself. Um, don't go in with no knowledge because that's foolish, you know, um, you do some work first and come with that. You know, I have learned X, Y, and Z, and I'm still grappling with the, these questions. What are your thoughts? Um, I do think that schools should be teaching young people to think critically and to ask questions and to listen to each other. And if you can model that, um, and if you can keep to the the restrictions that you have in the classroom. Um, I mean, it, yeah, I, I think I work with a lot of, in my day job. I work with an organization that sort of does this deliberately and creates spaces for teachers to do that. And I think there are a lot of schools that build it around a framework of being global citizens. So if you can place it within the curriculum, um, you know, so that it has a home and it isn't just a spontaneous thing. But sometimes you do have to stop things, especially if there is a racist incident. You will need to stop everything and you will give need to give it that time. So I think it's about trusting children, uh, setting the boundaries, um, being clear about, you know, how we listen and how we talk and taking it from there. Thank you. 
Thank you very much. Um, we're also seeing some very interesting questions around the role of um, policing in schools. So I wonder, Rosemary, if you could just talk a little bit about that. All right, Laura. So you're you're going to trigger me now at the okay. <laughs> you know, right right at the end towards the end of the thing. You're going to trigger me by asking me to talk about policing. But okay. I, I kind of I kind of jumped into that anyway in terms of how I introduced myself, didn't I? Um, when I first started teaching back in the 1980s in Birmingham, um, our cities were burning. Birmingham, London, Liverpool, um, uh, Bristol. Uh, we were up in arms as a community around stop and search and what that meant for our um, young people. As a trainee teacher, whilst I was still at university training, I started to work in a African Caribbean supplementary school at the same time in the 1980s. And when I first started my first teaching job um, in a school in Birmingham, um, the 1983 uprising, as we called it, rather than the riots, had taken place in Lazelle's Hansworth. I'll be really quick because I know time's running, yeah? And um, the, what happened was I was at home watching the riots kick off um, on my TV. By the time I got into school in the morning, um, the police were already in school um, because where the uprisings had started was about a, a mile from the secondary school that I worked in. And as a fifth-year tutor, old parlance, I was called into the office of the head teacher to bring my um, register and identify all the West Indian children who were absent from school that day because the police wanted to return bus passes, um, library cards, etc., etc., that had been picked up by the police um, um, during the, that uprising. Needless to say, you can imagine what the curriculum was um, in Saturday school that Saturday. This is what you need to do if you're stopped by the police. This is the number that you need to ring before mobile phones, by the way. This is the number that you need to ring, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my grounding. Yeah. So I am very, very concerned about um, the policing of um, uh, in schools, um, and I'm not saying that you can't have very good community policing that actually is trying to do the opposite of what I have just described. But the police, like us as educators, work within a systemically racist system. And we know that, and the evidence is there for that. And it doesn't matter how much you know, the Sewell report wants to say that it's anecdotal. We have centuries of evidence, overwhelming evidence to say where we are. So I would say as school leaders and as people who are trying to create a safe place for our staff, as well as our students, we cannot be um, politically naive about the situation that we're in. And what we have to do is to create a safe space and be very intelligent about how we interact with interventions, as I said, like prevent, 
um, and, and, and how that is impacted but on, on, on our communities. Because one of the things we're trying to build with our communities is trust. And if they feel that there is no trust um, in terms of their ex real experience, as Marcus is saying, with policing and, um, and what happens outside of the school doors, um, if they feel that we're being colorblind or that we're too scared to deal with that reality and that we are not being honest about what we're doing, then um, we lose that, that the agency that we have to make a difference and we lose the trust. So navigating that space is, is a, a difficult one, but it's Thank doable. You. As Desmond said, it's doable. Very good point. Thank you. We are running out of time, which is really upsetting because there's some fantastic questions. But I think, Penny, I'll just finish with one. If I could ask you in one minute to sum up any advice you have around the curriculum and around how we how we ensure that we embed this into the curriculum. Um, yeah, I think start early. Um, so there's some excellent work being done by the early years blacklist. Um, don't think about the curriculum as just being the hardware of the curriculum. So think about your early years home corner, think about everything. Um, I think like understand what you mean um, and what you're doing. So again, educate yourselves. Don't just think it's going to be swapping out and swapping in. Um, understand also the difference between diversifying and decolonizing because they're very different things. Um, yeah, and there's lots of opportunities. And I think just learn, learn, learn talk to other people, read, um, work together. There's amazing work going on around it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. I think I'll just have to wrap up and say a huge thank you to our panellists. That was a fantastic contribution. We had some really good points made around um, really listening to students, really hearing what they have to say, making sure that we educate ourselves, making sure we work with our peers, really think about allyship, um, and also recognise that we're not the font of all knowledge, so we can absolutely learn from the young people. So really appreciate all of your fantastic contributions. Thank you very much to everyone that attended and all of your brilliant questions. Um, and just to say, we'll, we'll continue this on Twitter with the hashtag Future Terms panel. And the next panel is also advertised on our website as well. So huge thank you for coming along today. And um, uh, the panel will be available for people to watch back as well. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to Future Terms from Teach First. We'll be back soon with another event. To find out more and to attend, visit teachfirst.org.uk forward slash future terms. <laughs> <laughs>